This morning we begin our journey through 1 Timothy. So take your copy of the scriptures, our pew Bible in front of you, and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And this morning the title of this message is A True Child in the Faith. A True Child in the Faith. And we will look at uh, these opening verses, these first two verses, the opening of this letter. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Our God and Father, we pray for your blessing upon the word read and expounded upon, preached. We pray for the help and work of your spirit. May he rest upon me and may he give us understanding, ears to hear and hearts to believe. We pray, Father, you would be with us over the coming days and months as we work our way through this great letter. Give us understanding of your truth and of your church, her labors, and the men who labor in it, and all of its facet. Father, may we, as your people, and this church be reflective of it. May we learn, and may we live accordingly what we find here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we come to the first of... Actually, three letters that are known as the pastoral letters or pastoral epistles. First Timothy, second Timothy, and Titus. And this morning we begin through this first one, first Timothy. And it is six chapters. Uh, this is, they are commonly called the pastoral letters uh, because they, they're not addressed to churches. We usually turn to a book and it's to the Colossians, to the Corinthians, to the Ephesians, to the Romans, to the Thessalonians. And this morning we come to a letter, it is to Timothy, to Timothy, a true child in the faith. And these letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, this is why they are known as the pastoral letters. Now, these letters that are addressed to individuals, they are helpful for the church, and as was common practice in the early church, as it is today, they are read publicly in the congregation and expounded upon. And so, while it is directed to the young pastor Timothy, it has implications for our church leadership, elders and deacons, and for the church at large. There's much here uh, concerning community life. As one commentator has called this book, the heart of it has to do with the life of the local church. And so we will see here what life and the local church, life in those early Christian communities looked like and their organization. Uh, these letters are essential for us especially living in times such as we are today, much like it was in the period of the early church. There is pressure upon the church from different aspects and angles. 
and many times there may be pressure to be pragmatic in the life of the church, but yet we will find here that there is a sure word from God concerning leadership and concerning the life of the church. These letters are essential for us as a church, corporately, of how we are to live together, how we are to function as a church, but these are truly essential for any, any young man that is desiring to serve, contemplating serving in church leadership. For when we get to the third chapter, it will deal with the overseers or the elders of the church and deacons. And so there's, there are many things to learn there. And additionally, these, these letters, this letter, is critical for us who are currently serving in the life of the church. These are letters that we should, we should read again, that we should go back to, read, study, and know the substance of these books to be reminded of how we as elders and deacons are to function and who we are to be in the way of character in the church. So my desire is that as we journey through this letter, that it will strengthen our view of the local church, its proper organization and leadership, and that the corporate worship of the church, we will see that even unfold aspects of it in this letter, and life in the sense of community seen here in this letter, and it would strengthen community in our church. If I was to give you an overview of this book, uh, this is Paul, as we're seeing, the Apostle Paul, writing to his uh, disciple Timothy, uh, who is serving at the church at Ephesus. And Paul will instruct, as we move through these six chapters, we will see quickly that Paul will instruct Timothy to oppose false teachers, to correct their false teaching. We'll see this in chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 6. Secondly, we'll see that Paul will instruct Timothy about proper worship. We'll see this especially in chapter 2. And third, we will see the requirements in chapter 3 for church leadership of elders and deacons. Fourth, we will see where Paul will begin to address relationships in the church. And there we'll see how community, that is our life together, is highlighted. He'll, he'll address the aspect of of widows, and then the elderly in the congregation. Not elders, but those that are older in the congregation. He'll address the issue that was common in the ancient world of masters and slaves. And fifthly, Paul will, before we are done, Paul will warn us about the danger about materialism. And before this is all over, he'll return back to Timothy again as a young pastor, and he will remind Timothy with a final charge for the final charge, those words that most of you are familiar with, where he'll say in chapter 6 to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith and to guard what has been entrusted to your care. So as we come to this letter, this morning we will begin with the salutation that is the greeting of this letter. But as we consider this and move into this section, we're going to see a father of the faith addressing a son of the faith. It will remind us of generations in the church and the new generation that is coming onto the scene in the New Testament. We will also be reminded again of faith and practice throughout this letter concerning the church. And we'll even begin to see aspects of that here in this uh, salutation, in these opening words. But as we begin, 
I want you to consider. I want you to consider as we begin this letter and this journey through these six chapters, consider this. Is the New Testament, is the New Testament sufficient? Is God's word sufficient for us as God's people in the way of the life of the church and in particular its faith and its practice? Are the scriptures sufficient to teach us how the church is to be organized? Are the scriptures adequate to explain the role and function of the elders and, and ministers? Are, or, or are, are, are such questions, are they just left up? Because if we look around us, there seems to be little common practices and organization and faith among the churches around us. There's a lot of diversity, but I must ask you, are we left to American pragmatism? Or do we have a clear instruction from God's word on, this such, on such things? Consider this. Just to begin to think through of what we're about to see. To begin to understand the organization of the early church and the life of the early church. The letters of the New Testament are typically written to churches to encourage and to correct, right? The same thing we will find in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy. And when the apostles, when Paul will call to account, or when he will encourage, or when he may rebuke, do we find the apostles or do we find Paul rebuking, correcting, or encouraging regional bishops? Not in the Bible. Do we find the apostle correcting, encouraging, an ascending series of church courts? What about a great assembly of representatives of like bishops or school of cardinals? Tracy's shaking his head. No, it's not in there. What about a pontiff in Rome? What about the Archbishop of Canterbury? What about a head of state? No, that's not what we find. What we will find is that when the apostles encourage local churches, when they are correcting, when they are rebuking, when they are calling to account local churches and the leadership of those churches, we will find in every case in the New Testament, it is the calling of an account, it is a rebuking, it is a correcting, it is encouraging of a local visible congregation and its leaders in that local visible congregation. Not only do we find that in the letters of the New Testament, but this is exactly what you find 
in the opening chapters of the book of the Revelation of the churches of Asia, isn't it? So that begins to give us a taste of how the early church was organized. Again, our passage this morning is a salutation, a greeting, an introduction. And in it, we only have two verses. And this is a typical opening letter found in the first century. In fact, this book was probably written, probably written... Uh, in the early 60s of the first century, like 62, AD 62, somewhere in that ballpark. When Paul writes, Paul is probably in his 60s in age. And by this time, we're going to see Timothy's known throughout the New Testament early on, but by this time, Timothy's probably in his late 30s, early 40s. We have, in these opening verses, we have a three-part salutation or greeting. It's in three parts. And there's not only three parts to this greeting, but there's two leading persons that are immediately found here and that we will see throughout the rest of this book. The three basic parts and the two leading persons are the author or sender, number one, found in verse one, And it's the Apostle Paul. Secondly, we will see the recipient of this letter. And it is Timothy. And thirdly, we will see at the end of verse 2, the closing of this greeting or salutation. So let us begin. Verse 1. The author or sender of this letter is Paul. It begins with this word, Paul. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here is the author of the letter. It is Paul, the apostle Paul, also known as Saul of Tarsus, his Hebrew name, Saul. We know uh, what we do know about Paul, especially from the book of Acts and other places in the New Testament. Before his conversion, he was a fierce persecutor of the church. In fact, here in this opening chapter, look at verse 13. Verse 13, he says, although I was formerly a blasphemer and a what? A persecutor. And a persecutor and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. When he would write to uh, the Galatians, In Galatians chapter 1, in Galatians 1 verse 13, he says it this way. Galatians 1 verse 13. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. You remember Paul was a Pharisee. He said, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure. And then he says, and tried to destroy it. So there he was before his conversion. An enemy of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. An enemy of the people of God. He labored fiercely to destroy the church. But yet, when we come to this letter here, now we find it's Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle is, is literally a sent one. A sent one. An apostle is sent out as a representative of another. In our times, we would think of it as like an envoy or an ambassador, where an ambassador would leave and go to another country, and he represents a a government, a president, a, a king, a leader of another country. He speaks on their behalf, and that's what an apostle of Jesus Christ did. He was an ambassador of Christ. He was sent forth by Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, after the death of Judas, the apostles desired to fill that vacant position. And they laid down a fundamental qualification that if anyone was going to take the place of Judas, there was a qualification that they must meet. And you remember what that qualification was? It's in Acts chapter 1. Verse 21 and 22. Acts chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. And that fundamental qualification was that the man must have been an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He must have been a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we may be thinking, well, how how did that happen with Paul? What happens at his conversion When the Lord sought him and struck him down on that road to Damascus, when he was in hot pursuit of the Christians and to destroy the churches, he said. In the book of Acts, chapter 9, Paul, or Saul, is on his way to persecute the Christians in Damascus. And the risen Christ appears to him and calls him, we find out. If you look in your Bibles, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. If you remember, it is Paul, where the scriptures tell us that first martyr of the church, Stephen, when he was stoned, when he was murdered, it says that the people that stoned him laid their cloaks at the feet of who? Of Saul, of Paul. Yes. And he's still breathing breathing threats, it says, verse 1. And murder against the disciples of the Lord. And went to the high priest, verse 2 of Acts 9. And asked for letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus. So that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Verse 6. So he was trembling and astonished and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. We know that the the disciples were fearful of Paul because of his attack upon the church. They did not trust him. But the Lord goes before Paul as Paul would go into the city, and the Lord speaks to Ananias. 
And he tells him in verse 15, Acts 9, verse 15, But the Lord said to him, that is Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, that is Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. And as you read through the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, you find that Paul is converted and that is the mission that he will carry out. He will preach before kings. He will preach to the Gentiles and the children of Israel. In verse 16, it says, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. And the theme of suffering in Paul's life and the early Christians and pastoral ministry will be a theme that we will see in these letters. Now, it's interesting that Paul now calls himself an apostle of Jesus and you begin to see by this language he has here. Notice, notice this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he says, by the command of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. In that, Paul appears to be making it plain that he had not called himself, but it was by the commandment of God, such as we see here in the book of Acts. It was the work of God. In fact, Paul, throughout his ministry, will defend his apostleship because he was that apostle born out of due time. And people keep questioning his apostleship. But again, the requirement of apostleship was that he had seen the risen Lord. Now on the road to Damascus, he had encountered the risen Lord. And writing, just as this one of a few places, but writing to the Corinthians, he would say this. And 1 Corinthians 9.1, listen to this. 1 Corinthians 9.1 Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? And then he says this, Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? In other words, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? Are you not Corinthian church? Are you not evidence of God's work through me? But he was called by the commandment of God. He did not call himself. He was not called by other men. He was called by God. Yes, we see that he is affirmed by the church, affirmed and recognized by the apostles, but he's called by God. Paul was saved by Christ. The language that we have here in verse 1 Paul, an apostle, Jesus Christ, by the commandment of our God, of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Paul was saved by Christ and appointed by Christ to be an apostle. To be an apostle. Now, let me ask you something. With this being said, in this language, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you. Do we have apostles today? There's people running around saying they're apostles. Do 
what was the requirement of the apostles in the early church? They had to see what? The resurrected Lord. We, we, and we are now seeing an apostle Jesus Christ is also commissioned directly by the Lord. And he's, if we could add a third point, it is he's also affirmed by the other apostles. There are no living apostles. Anyone running around claiming that they are, are an apostle, they can claim to be a sent one, like a missionary. But if they claim to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, they are a false apostle. That language is in the New Testament. A false apostle. <coughs> theologians, theologians will speak of the unique role and function of men like Paul called apostles. There is in the history of God's people, listen closely, Ode and the New Testament leadership and officers that are to be understood as those that are considered extraordinary, those that are considered extraordinary, and those that are ordinary officers. Extraordinary officers. Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, prophets, right? Old Testament, right? Extraordinary. New Testament apostles. Ordinary. What is Timothy? Extraordinary or ordinary? Ordinary. What about this guy standing up here? I'm ordinary. <laughs> My mama said I was special. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ordinary. Now watch this. There was a unique, extraordinary, foundational role concerning the apostles in the establishment of the early church. And Paul would write to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. He says, Now therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and saints and members of God's household, or the household of God. He's speaking of the church. And then in verse 20, Ephesians 2, verse 20, notice the role of the, uh, uh, of the apostles here. Having been built on, on the what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the apostles would be foundation layers of the early church, right? They would lay the foundation. We see this in multiple ways, especially in the ministry of the apostles, as they carry out the Great Commission in Matthew 28, for instance, as they go out and plant and establish churches, they're laying that foundation and also by giving us primarily the New Testament scriptures. They become foundation layers for the church in that extraordinary role and work. Now watch this. An apostle is an extraordinary office. Not only have they seen the risen Lord, 
but they are uniquely set apart and called by God. Now, we need to understand this when we speak of an apostolic church. Are we an apostolic church? That's our goal. We, 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 we pray that we are, right? We, we, we believe we are, right? That we stand on God's word, that the apostolic doctrine and truth that we're finding in the, in the scriptures is where we were built upon this. In Luke chapter 6, listen to this. Luke chapter 6, verse 13. And when it was day, he called his disciples, that is Jesus, to himself. And from them, he chose, he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. In Mark chapter 3, verse 14. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might, now catch this language, he might send them out to preach. Now, now watch this. When you read that kind of language, we need to be careful in how we are reading passages and understanding them in their context and how we interpret the Bible. When the Bible speaks of ambassadors, when the Bible speaks of those that saw Christ, touched him, heard him, and it's using terms like we, that we is not talking about us, it's talking about the apostles. We saw him. We beheld him with our eyes. We touched him, right? He's, in other words, they were affirming against Gnosticism. Jesus was not a phantom. He was flesh and blood. We walked with him as his apostles. Now watch this. This language here, he appointed the 12. He sent them out to preach. Then Matthew 28, verse 16. Watch this. Matthew 28, beginning of verse 16. Uh, an apostle's a sent one, right? A commissioned one. Then the 11 disciples, Matthew, six, Matthew 28, verse 16, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Who are those men? The disciples, and who else are they? What's the other name? Are they? They're apostles, aren't they? They're, they're 11 now because Judas has taken his life, hasn't he? It was 11. Verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. They were affirming his deity. They worshipped him. They acknowledged he's God. They worshipped him, but some doubted. Verse 18, and Jesus, verse 18, and Jesus spoke to them. Who's them? The apostles. He spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We've talked about this passage before. Here is the risen Christ. He will now be, he will now be exalted. He will sit upon the everlasting, eternal throne of David at the right-hand side of the Father in heaven. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth, right? You see that? And he's now commissioning these men. So the king of heaven and earth is now with authority commissioning these men to go. And he will pour out his spirit upon them. Isn't that what he does? He pours out his spirit. That's the opening chapters of Acts. 
He pours out his spirit upon them. And some of those men that were meek and timid and scared and fearful become strong and bold, don't they? And they will preach. And they will cast out demons. And they will perform miracles. They have been given the authority and the commission by the risen, exalted Christ. And it's his spirit whom he promised in John. He said, and my spirit will lead you into truth. Yes, indirectly the spirit leads us into truth. But that, but that passage is speaking of the apostles as he would, call, they, he would recall to the remembrance. He would lead them to, into the way of truth. And they will give us the New Testament. The Gospels. Verse 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And that's what they do. And they will go across the Roman Empire, around the Mediterranean Sea, and will preach this gospel. Clement says that Paul would make it to the gates, to the end of the earth. Where are the gates? The Strait of Gibraltar. So if that's the case, then we have this letter written, Paul's imprisoned, then he's released, has another missionary journey, makes it as far as Spain, if Clement, early church father's correct, then is arrested again, and by the time we had 2 Timothy, he's heading towards his death, his martyrdom. And notice... They would go and make disciples. One of those disciples that these apostles would make, Paul in particular, his name is Timothy. His name is Timothy. And they would plant churches, establish churches all across the Roman Empire. From Ephesus to Rome. Baptizing in the name of People would take upon them with apostolic authority. They would baptize in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And they would teach. And they would teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That's what we're finding in the New Testament. The teaching of the apostles who are establishing this one apostolic church that spreads across the ancient world. And this commission... And this truth found now in the New Testament scriptures given to the apostles as foundation layers of the church directly to them, now indirectly to us. And as we're going to see, we are beginning to notice there is now a father of the faith and a son of the faith, the son Timothy, a child of the faith. A generation now is passing, is beginning to pass. And it's becoming evident now with a son of the faith, a new generation, the next generation is coming onto the scene. The extraordinary ministers like apostles are being martyred 
the writing. God will even put them in prison to write, to sit still, to write. They will pass from the scene when the canon is completed. And the ordinary ministers will take that, that word from the extraordinary ministers and continue the work. And the church will continue to accomplish the commission, the mission to reach the nations, the mission to teach and to make disciples. We will continue as the baton is passed from one generation to the next, from the extraordinary to the ordinary. Do you see that? You see what I'm saying? Okay. Verse 2. So there, there verse 1 is the, the writer, the sender of the letter, the Apostle Paul. Now, verse 2, the recipient of the letter. Verse 2. The recipient to Timothy, a true son in the faith. A true son in the faith. The letters written to Timothy, not to Ephesus, to Timothy. Though its implication and application will be for the Ephesian church and for our church. Timothy. Timothy, by the way, is mentioned 24 times in the New Testament in 12 different letters. He is definitely a leading figure of the early church. The word, the name Timothy means one who honors God. If we would have had a fourth child, my wife had a name already picked out. Timothy Noah was going to be his name. We assume it was a boy since we already had three. Timothy Noah, one who honors God. And Paul calls Timothy a true son. Notice verse 2. Oh, to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Some of your translations have the possessive pronoun, my true son, my true child in the faith. This expression, son, my son, or to this child of the faith, it probably suggests that possibly Paul was instrumental in his conversion. Maybe, maybe. There's some other passages that go, well, maybe not. But in any case, Paul is definitely instrumental in the discipling of Timothy. That we know. And so there is this relationship of a spiritual father figure discipling a spiritual son. We, we could say there's clearly here and throughout the New Testament the way and the affection that Paul will write of Timothy a true bond between these men and as spiritual son and father. A true child in the faith. It's the faith. Definite article. 
the apostolic faith. The faith that Paul discipled and taught him. Timothy was a true child in that faith. When we get to verse 3, starting next week, we will see that there are false teachers in the church, and they do not hold to the apostolic faith. But Timothy, a true child in the faith, Paul has him remain in Ephesus and correct them. Timothy was to stay in Ephesus, and he was to shepherd the flock. He was to guard the flock. You remember in Acts chapter 20, when Paul, after spending a number of years in Ephesus... Teaching, instructing, it says the, the whole counsel of God's word. He warned the elders. He warned the elders among you, among you shall rise. What? Fierce wolves, false teachers. And by the time we get to first Timothy, that word from Paul had come true. And Timothy's to stay there by the command of Paul and to shepherd the church and to, as we might use the language of Titus, he was to set things in order. To set things in order. Look at verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. As I urge you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And this is his true son in the faith. He was reflective of his father. He was timid at times, not as bold as his father. And his father in the faith would encourage him and prod him. But there was no one like Timothy. There was no one in Paul's mind like Timothy. And so he prods him, urges him to remain and to charge these false teachers to teach no other doctrine. Now what we do know about Timothy. This one whose name means one who honors God. We, we have our first account of Timothy in Acts chapter 16. Now notice this. In Acts chapter 16 verse 1. Listen what it says. And quickly Paul notices something about this young man. In Acts chapter 16 verse 1. Then he came to Derby and Lystra, Paul. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. The son, notice this, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. And so we know now that Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. Verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Verse 3, and Paul wanted, wanted to, to have him go on with him. And he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, notice this, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. We will find other remarks concerning Timothy throughout uh, the pastoral epistles, especially of course, First and Second Timothy. But this apostolic doctrine that he was to teach and to correct, we find statements, for instance, in Second Timothy chapter 3. Listen to this. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But you, Timothy, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood, 
you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul will say there, you grew up in the faith. We're going to see in a moment. I, I know your mother and your grandmother. They taught you the scriptures. You've learned those things. Continue in that. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul will say, and you've learned them from me. Hold fast, he says, 2 Timothy 1, 13. Hold fast. The pattern of sound words, which you've heard from me, says Paul, in faith, love, which are in Christ Jesus. Then back to chapter 1, verse 3 of 2 Timothy, Paul says, I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as did my forefathers did without ceasing. Timothy, I remember you in my prayers, night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. Again, you see this affection of Paul toward, toward Timothy. And then he says this, verse 5. And when I, call, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith, and here it is, a true child of the faith, and here is a genuine faith, not a hypocritical faith, but a true faith that is in you, it first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded it is also in you. Again, notice we're starting to see generational language in the in this later part of the new testament it's moving now decades have passed now from the 30s they're in the time of christ to now we're in the 60s and people are starting to pass away as paul would write to the corinthians some had already gone to sleep in other words had passed away Verse 6 in 2 Timothy 1, Therefore I remind you, he says, to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us, Timothy, a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So, watch this now. While the Apostle Paul held, to the, held an extraordinary office, as an apostle that had seen the resurrection, called by God, and uniquely gifted, as we see like in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, uniquely gifted and called, and a foundation layer of the church. That was Paul. The next generation now, Timothy, would hold to the ordinary office as a minister or pastor in the church. It would take the words from the apostle, and would continue to teach and expound upon them. Now watch this. Proof of this. Watch this. Watch how this falls together here. Don't miss this. In 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy, the, this language, man of God, begins to come to the surface. That comes from the Old Testament in reference to the prophets. Man of God. And now it is applied to the New Testament minister, and in particular, Timothy. Timothy, oh man of God. Now watch this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You see what Paul's saying? The inscripted word, the inspired word, Timothy, is for you for teaching doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God, and who's that? Who is that? That's Timothy. That's Timothy and ultimately what? Future elders, future ministers of the gospel, right? That the man of God, notice this, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So again, as we were saying at the very beginning, our elders, men in ministry, 
the deacons, those in leadership, we should be going back to these pastoral letters that concern leadership to read them, to know them, to recall the teachings here that they may be adequately lived out and applied to the life of the church in leadership. And if you are here this morning and you are beginning to sense a kind of stirring in your heart, a desire for gospel ministry, it is these letters that you need to begin to absorb yourself with to see if that calling is true or not by God and then later affirmed by the local church. You need to know these words. But notice this, that the man of God may be complete, verse 17 of 2 Timothy 3, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And remember, the chapters and verses were added later. These all ran together. And so that's why you would immediately find, and I charge you, Timothy, therefore before God, verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge you, Timothy, therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Verse 2, what's the first three words? Preach the word. Preach the word. What word? God's word. The inscripted word, right? Now immediately we go, the Old Testament, right? He was to preach that word. What about the New Testament? It's coming together. Timothy has now at least one of the letters in his hand. And by the time we get to 2 Timothy, he's got a second letter in his hand, right? He's to preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Now watch this. If you take your Bibles and you turn over to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Now, you may be thinking, did Paul know he was writing scripture? Did Paul know he was writing scripture? Peter knew he was writing scripture. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Watch this. Therefore, my be therefore, beloved, look forward to these things. Be diligent to be found by him in peace and without spot and blameless. Verse 15. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Now, watch this. Verse 15. As also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, verse 16, as also in all of his epistles, all of his letters, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as, notice this, as they do also the rest of, rest of what? Of scripture. Peter is calling Paul's writings what? Scripture. Scripture. So when Paul tells Peter, or when Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, it's not just Psalms and Isaiah. Yes, that's the word. But it's this letter, 1 Timothy. Right? 2 Timothy. Read it to the church. Expound upon it. Preach it. Timothy will serve as a pastor in the church at Ephesus. And Paul is here writing to encourage, to instruct him to persevere, to remain faithful to apostolic doctrine and teaching, to the apostolic pattern for the church 
organization, and worship. Now catch this. We think everything's up for grabs nowadays. Did you hear what I said? Timothy was to remain faithful to apostolic doctrine or teaching and to the apostolic pattern for church organization and worship that's found in these epistles. Occasionally, you will find in your bulletin an insert. It'll either say orthodoxy or orthopraxy. When it's orthodoxy, it will say underneath it, why do we believe that? If it's orthopraxy, it will say, why do we do that? Orthodoxy has to do with right ortho, straight, right doctrine. Orthopraxy has to do with what? Right practice, right practice. And so Timothy was to continue in orthodoxy and orthopraxy. You see that? Belief and practice, faith and practice. Faith and practice. For example, this morning, we confessed as a community of God's people. In fact, in the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in God the Father. But when we do the Nicene Creed, it's communal. It's we, isn't it? It's we. And we confessed together as a community of God's people the faith of the church. We confessed a liturgy. That is, the Apostles' Creed The Nicene Creed is found in the liturgy of the ancient churches. And we confessed it together. It was a orthodoxy or orthopraxy confessing orthodoxy together. You see what I'm saying? And Timothy was not only to preserve by holding and teaching these truths, but he was to guard and defend that which was entrusted to him as a minister of of, of Jesus Christ. As we confessed this morning, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. Right? That's apostolic doctrine. Now, I need to wrap things up. Running out of time here. It's going to take us a while to get through 1 Timothy, you can see. The heart of this letter, as Paul writes to this young pastor, to persevere, to hold to the truth, to the teaching, to guard and defend that which was trusted into him as a minister of Jesus Christ. The heart of this letter, and the purpose of it, you find it in chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Watch this. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 14 and 15. Paul says, These things I write to you, Timothy, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to what? Conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Do you see it? There and in one verse we have orthopraxy and orthodoxy, right practice and right faith. And he will tell him how to do this. Now, thirdly, the closing of this salutation or greeting, it's at the end of verse 2. The end of verse 2. Look at verse 2. 1 Timothy 1, verse 2. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace and peace are regular greetings of the Apostle Paul in his letters. But here and here alone, he adds another point. 
Mercy. Mercy. Grace is God's undeserved favor and blessing. It's free grace. Freely given. According to the good pleasure of God. You'll find it in the New and Old Testament. You'll find language like, And Noah found grace in the eyes of God. It's free grace, given freely by God, according to his good pleasure. God's grace is his favor, giving us, giving us what we do not deserve. Forgiveness. New life in Christ. And not only grace, but he goes on to say mercy. And mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. We deserve judgment and wrath, but God shows us mercy in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says peace. Peace. That would be a common greeting in the ancient world. Peace. Peace is the result that now because of the death of the Son for us, we who believe are no longer enemies of God. We're no longer at war with God. But we have been reconciled to God. Through his son. And yes. That peace. That is the result of. Grace and mercy. Through the son. Not only. Reconciles us to God. But it gives us peace. Peace. Inward peace. Because of it. And notice what he says here. Grace, mercy, and peace. And he tells us the source. The source. From God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. The unity of the triune God. Here we have unity. Father, Son. There's no, there's no opposition in their wills. It's grace and, and pe- mercy and peace through, through God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the source of these good gifts. In closing, oh, there's much to say here in closing. Many of these things we'll say for a, uh, as we continue to move through. But I want you to notice something. We are beginning to see here in 1 Timothy, the beginning of the passing of the apostolic age. By around 67, 68, Andrew just took a course on the life of Paul. When did Sam say it was? Was his death? About 67, 68? Yeah. Was his death? Probably at the hands of Nero. He was martyred. And the apostles are passing on from the scene. 
And the baton is being passed from one generation to the next. And of course, the head of the church, God in his wise providence is working. And he's moving the apostolic band to write. And they're giving us 1 Peter and 2 Peter and 1 John and 2 John and the Revelation. And they're giving us Colossians and Romans and, and Thessalonians and, and 1 Timothy and, and on and on. They're giving us the apostolic word. So that future gener- for Timothy and future generations of leadership in the church and the churches would have the inspired word of God. And he's preserved it. He's providentially given it to us and preserved it. And we have it in our hands today. We know what we are to believe as a church. We have to quarry the scriptures. But we know what we are to believe. And we know what we are to do. It's right here. In the infallible word of God. This letter was written by an apostle. With apostolic authority. That means it. it, Apostolic authority. It just doesn't apply to Timothy. It just doesn't apply to the church at Ephesus. It applies to Christ's church. Because it came from the head of the church. Because Paul's a representative of Christ. The head of the church. And so he's writing to all ministers, all elders, all churches. And therefore, as God's people, we are to receive these words with such authority as if we have heard God himself from heaven speak. That's what Calvin said, right? So let us receive it. We're going to begin to see generations. That the things we do, we're going to be reminded here throughout this book, the things we do, the work, the decisions we make now make a difference for the next generation. The discipling of our children, planting churches, supporting missionaries, establishing and building upon the work that's already here, it makes a difference. We have an example of it here, and now we hold it in our hands. As the Apostle Paul would say, your labors are not in vain. Let us remember this. Verse 15, Paul Paul would say, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul had tasted the grace and the mercy of God. God saved this persecutor of the church. and gave him a new heart made him apostle. And this persecutor became a proclaimer of the gospel throughout the known world. May we as God's people and church continue the mission that we've been given as Christ's church. As we come to the table this morning, we're reminded of that saving grace that came to Paul, has come to us that believe by faith that Christ Jesus died for sinners like us. He died on the cross. He shed his blood for our sin where we have disobeyed his law and word, deserving of death, Christ died for us. 
This morning you will believe and trust in Christ and the glorious gospel, the Son of God that died on the cross, was buried and risen from the dead. If you'll turn from your sins, repent of them, and turn to Christ by faith and trusting and believing in his work, there is eternal life and promise of forgiveness of sin. As we come to the table this morning, that which we hear from the word and the gospel, we see in sign and symbol, in the bread and the cup, his broken body, his shed blood, the cup he drank, that is God's wrath for us. If you're with us this morning and you are a believer in Christ, you've, tr- you've trusted in Christ as he's found in the gospel. You're baptized by water in the name of the Trinity. You're a member of a Bible-believing church in good standing, or maybe you're in transition, you're looking for a new church home, but you're a Christian. We invite you in the name of Christ to eat this bread and drink this cup with us. If you're not a Christian, we call upon you to trust in Christ today and be saved. But do not partake of the table. It is a covenant meal for God's people. But stay and watch and listen. Observe with the eyes and listen with the ears the true meaning of this table. And we pray that you would learn more of Christ. Let us pray.